goodness gracious, I can't believe it. Bob Hope is with us, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my goodness. Bob, how are you? It's wonderful to see you. How are you? This is Eugene Levy. Mr. Hope, how are you, sir? Oh, my hey, goodness. How are you? Hey, how are you, cat? Please sit down, Mr. Hope. Well, where? Now, there's sit only right two chairs. Now, sit right chair. down here. Mr. Hope, what brings you to our stage in a surprise sort of way? I guess I thought I'd come by and plug my special. What is the what special you're doing? Uh, now, we're doing a big uh, 100th birthday special out at Edwards Air Force Base where they're going to set off a, the government is going to set off a 20 kiloton bomb in my honor. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> it's honestly my favorite impression of all time that anybody's ever done. I mean, there's some great impressionists. You don't hear too many anymore, but great impressionists. But the Bob Hope impression that Dave Thomas does there. And that was from Primetime Glick on Comedy Central from back in the day in either uh, 2000 or 2001, where Eugene Levy was on the set. So Martin Short, Eugene Levy, and of course Dave Thomas, an SCTV reunion without appearing like it's a big SCTV reunion. It was, it, it's hilarious. And by the way, I always go check out those primetime Glick shows as well. But I also, during the pandemic, had an opportunity to go back and watch a ton of SCTV and got a lot of people into it. A lot of my friends that, I guess, were more SNL people that they're like, okay, actually, this is really funny. And uh, it, and it still holds up after all these years, after 40-plus years of being on television and and syndication all the way up until the 2000s. Still is a great show to this day, and it's all over YouTube, and there's DVDs out there. So, yes, my guest today is Dave Thomas. And uh, you know Dave from the movie Stripes. You know him from, you've seen him in Coneheads. You've seen him in Rat Race. Of course, Strange Brew with Rick Moranis. And uh, these... One, one half of the duo of the McKenzie brothers, Bob and Doug McKenzie. They had two albums they put out there. They had that movie. They have statues of them up in Canada. And, of course, when you talk about television, he was in Grace Under Fire. He had his own show, the Dave Thomas Comedy Show. We do talk about From Cleveland, which was a one-off TV show that I had to ask him about that I saw online recently. The new show, a show that was a Lauren Michaels production that should have gotten a little bit more traction. And of course, like I said, Second City TV, SCTV, uh, just a fantastic actor, writer, uh, comedy legend. It was an honor to talk to him. But not only did I talk to him about Bob Hope and comedy and everything else and SCTV, but there's a reason I got him on too is because he has a book out. And the, the book is, is very fascinating. And it's called The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton. And it's Dave Thomas and Max Allen Collins. They co-wrote this book together. And it's a multiverse sci-fi thriller. Very interesting. Uh, again, coming from the guy who did the talking about hosers and <laughs> drinking beer in Strange Brew, all the way to he's making these sci-fi thrillers. So it's a very fascinating concept. And you'll get to hear a little bit more from him in this interview. So I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Dave Thomas. And by the way, if you want more conversations like this, and early access to guests, go sign up for my Patreon if you don't mind. I know we have tough supply chain issues and prices and inflation are up now, but I understand. But if you want to be entertained, five bucks a month is uh, you get unlimited access to my podcast and um, early access to guests. And you hear my rants and ravings about things that piss me off. <laughs> You know, whatever goes on, whatever's going on in my head, and I decide I want to put it from my brain into a microphone and into in posting on my Patreon. Go sign up. It's just five bucks a month for Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. But if you don't want to sign up, I still put out weekly interviews every Wednesday, including this one, in which you can subscribe to on Apple, Spotify, Google, Alexa, iHeartRadio, anywhere you get your podcast. Podbean, it's up there as well. So enough of me. Time for my conversation with the great Dave Thomas. Now, the song that you're going to be doing, Richard, you don't mind if I call you Richard? No, I don't well, mind. It's a, well, this is uh, the song that it was a big hit years ago for you, uh, MacArthur Park, and this is kind of a new updated version. Am I right? But I, I spent two years working on my voice, and now I'm ready to apply it to, to song rather than acting. Well, this is going to be very exciting for us because we're going to hear some new vocal stylings from this man right here. I hope you like it! <laughs> Mr. Richard Harris, everybody. Park is melting in the 
It's Tony Mazur here, and uh, i got to say, I've been wanting to talk to this gentleman for, gosh, I would have to say decades, but uh, I, just somebody that he's a recognizable face, a vec- recognizable name, and just somebody that I've admired for so long, and I know you folks have in the audience too, and that's Dave Thomas. And Dave, I mean, has essentially done everything in the business for the last 40-plus years from being Oh, I don't know, a cast member on the little show called SCTV and uh, uh, a movie called Strange Brew and uh, big movies, big TV shows like Grace Under Fire and uh, really has done everything. And it's just such an honor to talk to him today. And uh, Dave, thanks for doing this. And by the way, first, before I begin and talk, I want to talk about your book as well that just came out just uh, recently. But I heard recently that uh, you, uh, you almost weren't with us pretty soon. You know, you were, you could have been, that book may not have happened, that you were in the hospital for a while. How do you know about this? I, Did I tell you? No, I do a little uh, deep research. Well, I got sepsis last, in June of 2020. Goodness. And uh, it's it's got a 50% kill rate. And my it was right about the time that COVID, COVID was starting to break out. And my wife thought I had COVID. I actually thought I had COVID. I got sick. And then, so she went in the guest room and I was in the bedroom. She found me in the bedroom on the floor. And my arms and legs were swelled up to twice their size. I was incoherent. And um, she called 911. They took me to the hospital. And they, by the time they got me there, she said, he, they said, this is sepsis. It's, it's, he's in septic shock. We may not be able to save him. This is, what, this is the message my wife gets. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember this, of course, because I was in septic shock. <laughs> were, you well, like, were you in a coma or like what was going on? I, don't, I, I haven't met anybody who's actually been, had sepsis that bad or at all, actually. I, I, I don't think I was in a coma. Nobody told me that I was in a coma, but I don't remember most of this going on, you know. Goodness. I've got some glimpses of the hospital, but I don't know if it was later or if it was at the same time. But, um, yeah. So that was kind of dicey. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I could not... There, there's a chance the book doesn't come out and that I don't get a chance to talk to you, and that happened June of 2020. I got married in June of 2020, so I don't know which was worse for us. So like you were getting married and I was almost dying. How about that? Exactly. It's a it's a toss up, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let, let's uh, talk about the book and then we we can talk about some other things uh, sure. of, of interest. But the many lives of Jimmy Layton, and well, first available it, on Amazon. And it's it, it, it's interesting because for somebody like Max Collins that you helped you you did the book with that he's kind of like a film noir guy. He's kind of done a lot more mystery stuff and. Your background has been in comedy and, of course, lately has been more drama. But putting together a book like that in a nonfiction or a fiction book talking about multiverses. And you're like, wait a second, this is the Dave Thomas who did the <laughs> the Great White North. That's the same guy who's writing a multiverse book. That's insane. Well, I've always been interested in that stuff. So, you know, I've had a kind of a like a fascination with quantum physics. So, and when I read this, the work of this guy named Hugh Everett III, who was a Princeton physicist, who took that famous Schrodinger's cat in a box experiment that physicist Erwin Schrodinger came up with, that the cat is either dead or alive. It's in two states until you open the box, and then it's the act of observing the cat that actually determines its state. It's either alive or dead. So then whoever, the third's looking and he's thinking mathematically that all binary choices have one or two possibilities. You come to an intersection, you could go left or right. So the question is, you turn left, that becomes your realized reality. The right turn, the road not taken, well, what happens to that? In his theory, that exists. And all the decisions that you make, consequently, from taking that right turn, you hit a kid on a bike and killed him, or you got home safely 
and order a pizza and then went into septic shock. You know what I mean? There's like all these possibilities he claims exist. His detractors, uh, physicists like Max Planck, came up with what with a what they called the so Hugh Everett's the third's interpretation was called the many worlds interpretation. And it is as it sounds, there's many worlds. So you go this way, it's one world, you go that way. That's another world. Because we've, we've heard about like the uh, the butterfly effect, where you know this, this is different than that. This is different. Okay, because you know, yeah, like, one, you, like you said, that, that there there's like that fork in the road where you can go in one way, you go in another direction, and it definitely alters your life. But this takes it like way more steps forward here. Sure, and you know the butterfly effect. Sorry, the butterfly effect. If <laughs> effect, one more time, yeah. It, <laughs> That's sort of like a way of describing complex systems, you know, like weather systems and things like that, where, you know, a little thing here causes has a domino effect. And by the time it gets to the other side of the world, it's a, it's a goddamn hurricane, you know. So it, it's, it's different than the many worlds interpretation, that's for sure. But anyway, I thought this was a great idea for a story. And I originally conceived this as a TV show. And um, and then I pitched it a couple of places and I saw executives' eyes kind of rolling back into their heads and I went, okay, this isn't going to work. Did they think it was so too I, deep or was it not diverse enough with a cast and everything? Well, what happens is there's an off switch that all executives have. And the minute they turn that off, it doesn't matter what you say after that. If Once the off switch has been hit, you're dead. <clears throat> so I think somewhere early in my pitch, I lost them mm. and they didn't hear what the possibilities would be because I, the way I saw it ultimately was that, okay, this small time thief, Jimmy Layton is on the run from a Vietnamese drug lord. He owes 5,000 bucks. So he, he lives in South Boston. So he crosses the river and goes to Cambridge. He steals a Harvard sweatshirt. And he tries to blend in with the students there. And Jimmy's good at blending in. He's a professional second story guy. Well, he needs money, so he breaks into a house. He breaks into the wrong house. It's the house of a physicist who, in his basement, is doing a quantum experiment with Hugh Everett III's many worlds interpretation. And Jimmy accidentally connects the wrong plug to the wrong female end of quantum batteries. And next thing you know, plugs he's holding become a steering wheel and he's in another version of his life in Chicago a thousand miles away. And then he starts hopping from one version of his life to another. Now, in each version of his life, all the people are the same, but just slightly different versions of himself. So his girlfriend is still there, but in another reality, maybe she's a lesbian or in another reality, maybe she married his best friend or in another reality, maybe his best friend is dead. You know, all these things are those sort of possibilities in alternate universes. And for a television show, I thought, wow, this is great because it allows an a, a main actor to play many different versions of himself every week. Mm -hmm. And not like Quantum Leap where Scott Bakula is playing, you know, you know, Martin Luther King one week and JFK another week. He was always playing famous people or people close to famous people. This would be Jimmy Layton, the small-time thief from Boston, who in one life is this, one life he's a priest, in another life he's a soldier, in another life he, you know, he's a, a, a cop. They're all things that could have been possible from his point of departure as an orphan growing up in South Boston. So it's not like he goes and becomes the president of argentina or something you know yeah. they're all they're all fee but what would be great about a show like this for television is that the other players his girlfriend his, his best friend his, his priest all they get to play slightly different versions of themselves every week too so you have like a little rep company that you could put together and it would be a fun challenge for the actors and the writers to come up with these new versions every week you know I, I, anyway. see, see, I like that, and I, I think it would be great for a, a streaming service as well. And 
And, and the one thing about, especially TV shows, but even books too, is that you start to, there are some times where, and you've probably seen this, you know, in your years of working out in Hollywood, is that you have these great concepts, but then you don't want it to get too deep where it, you're going to lose the audience. Like you were trying to pitch them this and they're like, yeah, you know, you know, they're thinking about lunch or they're thinking about what time they got to go to their kid's baseball game later. And uh, so you don't want to get too lost in the woods with a lot of some of these concepts. So I, your way, and this is what makes it interesting, is that you made it pretty relatable and that you're not veering too far off the story where you're like, I, how do we get back to the original plot of this? That's why I find it interesting. Well, and when I combined forces with Max, and that was just coincidence, you know, I mean, we had a mutual friend, Tom Kenny, who plays SpongeBob. and Mr. Show he, and Shakes the Clown. Right. He connected us. And um, Max, as it turns out, was a fan and I was a fan of his. And we'd never met or talked. And we started talking. And I told him about this idea. And he said, well, he said, let me read it. I had written three chapters. And when he read it, he said, I really like this. He said, I can help you find a publisher. I can help you find a book agent. Or what I'd rather do is help you write it. So we decided to do that. And then COVID hit. And so I was going to go to Muscatine, Iowa, which is where he lives. And he was going to come out to L.A. Well, that never happened. Then I got sepsis, and that really shut me down. And when I got out of the hospital, Max had a book deal. We had a book deal. Max, we had put together the three chapters, added two more, and, a, and an outline for 18, 17 chapters uh, before I went in the hospital, before I got sick. And then while I was in the hospital, Max got a book deal. So when I got out, I had a book to write. <laughs> and, and that was great because, you know, I got up every morning. I had something to do. And uh, I was really happy about that. And especially in recent years, because I've, I've heard interviews and you talking about kind of the state of the industry and especially comedy in general is that it's just it's not the same. Comedy doesn't. They, I, they're either not taking the chances that they used to, or they're afraid to take those chances. And I, I say this is somebody that, you know, me doing podcasting, but I'm also a stand-up too. And it's freeing to go on stage, but now it's almost like the audience starts getting trained into going, oh, that's inappropriate. It's like, <laughs> oh, oh I, I probably shouldn't laugh at that. So, and and I noticed that a couple of years ago, the, um, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Todd Phillips, I believe his name was, the director of the Joker movie said, I can't do movies like old school anymore because the audience is just, you know, they're, they're too woke. They're too this and that they're, they're getting really offended. So I don't know if I can do comedy. So you've been doing drama uh, and, and doing the blacklist for a little bit too. So you, it's not like you're this comedy writer who's like, Oh, I'm just going to all of a sudden transition into doing sci-fi novels here. It's like, no, I've kind of, you've kind of been interested in this for a long time. I got, I was always interested in sci-fi, but I got driven out of comedy by the woke audiences, no question. And I have a lot of friends who are stand-ups and they say, just like you, you know, they go to colleges and they're getting booed and, you know, <clears throat> people need trigger warnings and they got to have safe places to go so they don't have to listen to people that they don't want to hear. And nobody wants their preconceived notions uh, rattled. And, and by the way, a college seems to me to be a place where you should go to get your beliefs challenged, to be exposed to new ideas and not to wall off and go, no, 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 don't. Ah, I don't want to hear trigger warning, trigger warning. You know, it's I, a hive I, mind. Think, I think we're I think the audiences are getting so soft. They're just a, a generation of babies and they that makes it terrible for comedy because comedy is supposed to be on the edge. I mean, Dave Chappelle's just gone through this world of shit with the trans community. And I heard about the shit before I saw his show, which I'm sure is the case with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I watched his show and it was like a love letter to the trans community. It wasn't transphobic at all. So then again, it was just a bunch of goddamn woke social justice warriors walking around look scrolling through their cell phones looking for things that offend them and um 
and they ganged up on him and Twitter bombed him. And I think that's as wrong as it could be, especially for comedy, because comedy, comedy, when it's done right, you know, George Carlin used to say this, when it's done right, comedy is sort of like a guardian of the fringes. It it keeps us from going too far, keeps us from taking ourselves too seriously, keeps us from getting too deeply immersed in fundamentalist religion, or keeps us too, it keeps us shy of believing too much that the government is our friend. You know, comedy is a watchdog for all of those ills. And if you can't do anything in comedy because your audience is sort of pushing buttons and creating boundaries for you, that's terrible. It really seemed about 10, 15 years ago is where you had the peak amount of uh, 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 comedy in and platforms where you did have Netflix specials and you can get away with a lot of more things that you weren't able to get away with in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, Then eventually, obviously, the 80s came out. But we have so many opportunities on YouTube for people to get ideas challenged and talk about different subjects. And instead, they get banned from social media. Oh, you can't say that because you said this word. When in reality, you think about the fact that we can say basically anything we want. I mean, you go back into the 70s and somebody that says fuck or shit is like, ooh, it's really taboo. It's not only is it not taboo, it's pretty hack now to just go up and curse. It's more it's it's probably more mind blowing if you have a Norm MacDonald who tells, you know, turn of the century jokes on a roast as opposed to just cursing on stage. And it's uh, comedy is a much different <clears throat> animal. And I don't. And I'm looking at that Emmy behind you, and I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. I look, I'm uh, I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing. And by the way, I I, did, I worked on Bones for three years before I went to the Blacklist, and I had a great time on that show. I had to I had to go from you know knowing the sort of rhythms and styles of comedy and stand-ups to forensic anthropology and you know 200 the 206 bones in the human body and how they can be broken and how those can be dissected uh, after death to point to a killer i love that i had a great time doing that and i never thought of myself as a mystery writer at all <clears throat> and then i get this challenge to work with max allen collins you know road to perdition and all the all the Mickey Spillane stuff he did. And, and he's written over a hundred novels. And I said, well, we got to do a mystery thread. We can't just do my sci-fi idea of Jimmy Layton going into the other dimensions. And he said, yeah, you're right. So what we came up with was that when Jimmy connects those wires, you get shot in the head. At the same time, there's somebody in the basement of that professor's house. And so we alternate chapters of Jimmy's adventures in other versions of his life with two cops investigating who shot Jimmy Layton because they're called to the house of this physicist who was away at a conference, comes home, discovers the body of Jimmy in his basement. He's not dead, he's in a coma. And this all jives with the theory of the many worlds that whoever the third came up with, because in his theory, you come to that fork in the road, you go, you go left or you go right. The realized choice, if you decide not to do that and you decide to take the road not taken, the only way to do that is to commit what he called quantum suicide. So you blow your brains out. This is a very bad experimental method in the scientific community (laughs) because you can't come back and report your findings you know what i mean so most of the scientists scoffed at that and um but anyway we use that in our in our book and it gave us a thread for a mystery story that we could intercut uh and weave into the jimmy layton story and make it both and bring them both together at the end it was a fun. It was a fun challenge. That is fascinating. That and and you're somebody that you've been a writer for so long too, and to try to challenge yourself into that and, and dealing with Max Collins, like you said, a road to perdition. That uh, which, by the way, sounds like a, sounds like one of the 
Hope and Crosby movies. That would have been perfect for the character. <laughs> yeah, what do <are> you? <laughs> but by by the way, I got I I have to ask about Bob Hope because I am being being from Cleveland and Bob's from Cleveland. The team yep. the team that used to be known as the Indians that Bob partially owned is now going to be called the Guardians. And the reason they're called the Guardians is there are statues on the Hope Memorial Bridge, not named after Bob Hope, but his father in downtown Cleveland. And I, so all my life I did book reports and I've been obsessed with Bob Hope for so many years. And then it, I guess the ultimate compliment I can pay anybody is to say that if there's, it's my favorite impression of anybody. I mean, Kevin Pollack does the, the Peter Falk impression. It's just outstanding. Um, I know Jay Moore does a great Colin <clears throat> Quinn and a lot of others. At, but my favorite impression is Dave Thomas's Bob Hope impression. And it, it's, and anybody who does a Bob Hope impression is doing Dave Thomas doing Bob Hope. And it's like the ultimate compliment where you could pay anybody for somebody that was just, just as massive as it was. And, and, and also the other part I loved about the impression is you aged the impression as Hope aged. Because <laughs> cause you go back yes. to the Bob Hope Desert Classic and he's still kind of like the, you know, the Vietnam War era feel of, of Bob Hope. But then by... Jiminy Glick, you are decrepit <clears throat> Bob Hope, and but you aged the impression. You weren't doing like, oh, you know what, but I'm still going to do the old Jack Nicholson from The Shining, even though Jack's in his 80s right now. So I, it's that's why it's my favorite impression. Well, you didn't see the one I did that I was most proud of, which was dead Bob Hope. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that. My friend Paul Schaefer, after the Letterman show ended, was doing... Um, an act in the lounge at Caesar's Palace, Cleopatra's Barge. And he asked friends to come. Actually, Dave Letterman came one back. He asked a friend to come every night and be his special guest star. And I was very flattered. He asked me to come and be his guest star one night. And he asked me if I would do Bob Hope. And I said, yeah, I'll do Bob Hope, but only on the condition that he's dead. <laughs> that you introduce me as, ladies and gentlemen, he lived to be 100 but he's not with us anymore. Will you welcome, please, the late Bob Hope? And they come out. And so I had to come up with Bob Hope jokes that he would do if he was dead. And one of the jokes that I came up with that I was most proud of was, you know, the, the, the great thing about being dead is I don't have to wake up in the morning with Folgers in my cup, <laughs> which, which I thought, that was a damn fine Bob Hope joke. And um, anyway, yeah, I did dead Bob Hope for Paul. Oh, is that hilarious? I, like, And doing the, the impression is so great because you're doing all the other cadences. You're looking at the cue cards slightly towards the side of the camera. You're doing the, you're making the jokes that, because there were never great jokes. No one was ever falling on the floor, especially by, you know, after 1960 at a Bob Hope joke. You were just going, ah, all right, uh, it's Bob Hope. It's doing his yearly special. And doing the, like, uh, for example, I was thinking of one today where he's like, hey, uh, well, how about that Viagra, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, things keep getting harder every day. And then doing the things where he's looking off to the side. Like something, one of those jokes where I think even his writers knew they weren't really good jokes, but it they're Bob Hope jokes. So you just kind of put it there for him and he does them in a special. And uh, it's... That it, it, but I just I just loved the impression. I loved everything about it. And I love the fact that you not only got to meet him, but you adored who he was. Because I noticed this uh, about something like Alec Baldwin's uh, Trump character. Whatever people like or dislike about Trump, he's not doing it because he likes Donald Trump. He likes it because he's assassinating his character. And that's the problem. That's, a, he, that's, what, that's what Norm MacDonald said. Yeah. And, and, and when, you're, when you have an opportunity where you can do an impression of somebody it, or you're roasting somebody on these roasts. Like I, I, I go to these roasts and uh, doing comedy and you don't even know this person that you're roasting. And the whole point to the Dean Martin roasts, a lot of them were they were all friends with each other and that they can poke fun at their golf game or their drinking or whatever the case is. And so when you're doing an impression, it was supposed to be out of love. It, Martin Short didn't dislike uh, you know, uh, Jerry Lewis, he loved Jerry. And that's why he's doing it. And that's why it was a great impression. 
And it's the same thing with you with Bob Hope. You were a fan of Bob's and you got to meet him. So it wasn't like you're doing this because you hated him and you wanted to denigrate him on uh, national television. Well, as I said, Norm MacDonald said that. And that's why he didn't like um, uh, the Trump impression that you were talking about. Mm. And because he said, you got to like the guy to be able to do an impression of him. You got to you got to find some place in you that relates to him so you can get inside the guy's head. And and I think that's true. And um, that was certainly true of me with hope. And, you know, I agree with you. By the time Bob hit the 70s, he was pretty much phoning it in. And, um, but, but boy, you go back to and listen to his stuff from the 40s, watch his movies from the 40s and the 50s. He was sharp and he was fast and he was funny. And he just stayed at the party too long. That's all, you yeah. know. And, um, I mean, I did a roast for him at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. <laughs> That's a very strange thing because, you know, I was on the dais with Sid Caesar, Norm Crosby, Phyllis Diller, um, Connie Stevens. I forget who. But, but was, it, was this all... Bob Hope salutes the young comedians? Was no, that no, no, no. That was a completely oh, was that a was a TV one. show. Okay. This was this was just a roast at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and um, that was um, sponsored by the House Ear Clinic, because you know Bob was deaf <laughs> and he would never wear hearing aids, but he went to the House Ear Clinic, and I think Dolores got him to do- donate a bunch of money. But anyway, uh, Bob, Bob was at that point in his career not on stage anymore. He he had uh, done a couple of things like Kennedy honors where you're not on stage. You're watching people come out and paying tribute to you. And you're sitting in the kind of um, Abraham Lincoln box, watching it all from, you know, and waving to people and hope got into that. And that's how he played the last five years of his life, you know, sitting in the Abraham Lincoln box, you know, while other people saluted him. So, I was at this thing at the house here at the Beverly Hilton hotel. And he, the, the loudest thing you could hear from the audience was hope going, what's that? What's that? I didn't, I didn't hear what, what did he say? I didn't hear that. What's that? <laughs> so it was pretty funny. That is, I, I tried to retrace the steps. Obviously I know where Bob hit, where his childhood home is up in uh, near the Cleveland clinic in, in downtown. But then when I went out to uh, L.A. about five years ago, I went to the uh, Bob's Big Boy over there on Riverside. Oh, and yeah. I knew he used to go there and go into the way back into the car hop and get a couple of burgers and then head home into his place down the street from on Toluca Lake. And I honestly, I was surprised because I'm like, wait a second, that's Bob Hope's home? And it's unassuming from the outside, but it's massive. And it had like the par three golf course in the back. But... Uh, I love the story. You got. You have to tell of the time that Bob, quote unquote, invited you over to his home. <laughs> I was there. Th- I, I was there. I think three times. Three but, times. Okay. I, yeah. I, I heard the one story where he called you over. Apparently. Yeah, I was at the one you're talking about. Is I was at Grace Under Fire, and his publicist Ward Grant called me and said, "Bob wants you to come over to the house." I went, "Hey, Bob wants me to come over. I'm coming over." You know. So I left the rehearsal and um, went to Bob's house and Ward met me and he said, he's upstairs uh, just outside his bedroom. He had a little kind of makeup area there. So I walk up the stairs and Hope sees me and he turns. He goes, uh, he goes, oh, hi, Dave, what are you doing here? And I said, well, <laughs> Ward said you wanted me to come over to the house. And he said, he said, oh yeah? Well, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so I knew you don't get into it with an old guy like that and go, you don't say, no, no, you're saying what do you want? But, you know, uh, you said for me to come over and I just said to him, I want to see that picture you have of General Patton pissing in the Rhine because I'd heard about this. So he had the photo of General Patton 
and Hope lit up like a Christmas tree when I said that. And he said, "He said you heard about that? Come here, I'll show you." <laughs> he, he said, "He said you know, Patton said he would cut a swath through Hitler's Europe, and he and 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 he would piss in his Rhine." And he said, "I got a photo of him doing it." <laughs> and, and sure enough, he leads me over, and then there's General Patton with his dick out pissing in the Rhine. It was, <laughs> it was. And, and Hope says, he said, you know, there were three of these pictures of the family. The Patton family wanted them back. He said, but I would never give him this one. <laughs> so, you know. Which I've seen. Now I, the photo, I think, is public domain right now. Uh, yeah, it is. But it but it wasn't then. Yeah, I, I, I've seen the picture, and I'm like, I've never heard this photo. And sure enough, he's standing right in the ledge of the Rhine River. And he's, he's relieving himself. And. I, I think right around that time was the there was that weird there's a Kmart commercial that had yeah. uh, Kathy Ireland and Mario Andretti and Martha Stewart and at the end they say and you'll never know who else is going to show up and they say you want some coffee sir and it's just and it's Bob Hope in a diner in the back back row yeah. of like a like a <clears throat> Waffle House going like big Kmart oh that is big and then he leaves and I'm like how much did they pay Bob Hope and how much did, <laughs> just it seemed like he was at that point because it was ninety eight. He was ninety five when he did that commercial, and I think that might have been one of his last TV appearances. Maybe. Um, I I did his ninetieth birthday, which was a gigantic show. His first ninety NBC. years. <laughs> yeah, and I played Chester Hope, his nephew, and I came out and did a monologue, and um, and I remember uh, the producer of the show. He's big. He's a big uh, variety producer. I forget. I forget his name. But anyway, he said, "Bob and Dolores will be sitting at the end of this ramp. the The stage had a ramp that went down on a slope to kind of a a, a riser that was round. And Hope and Dolores were sitting there, and all the people that came out and saluted him came down the ramp." And and he said, so you'll come, you'll do your act, then you'll come down the ramp, and uh, Hope won't know who you are. He won't be able to hear you, and um, he won't, he won't be. You can't talk to him. And I said, well, what the fuck am I going down the <laughs> ramp for then? But anyway, uh, I did my thing, and then I did my little monologue, and then I came down the ramp. And Hope gets up. And I see the cameras. They're not expecting this. And they're sort of moving, you know, like Hope's on, his, Hope's on the move. <laughs> and, and he walks towards me and he says, he says, hey, Dave, how are you doing? It's been some time since we've met up in Toronto there. So he not only knows me, but he remembers the first time he met me, which was backstage at uh, one of his shows. One of his writers brought me there. And so I start talking to him and we're in what they call a 50 50. So there's me here and there's hope here. And so there's a camera in front of us to pick up a two shot. And then there's cross cameras. There's my camera over here. That's getting me. And then there's Hope's camera over here. That's getting hope. And so they're shooting over hope to get to me. And so my first line, I notice hope adjusts. And he's blocking me from my camera. <laughs> so I thought, ah, oh, he's 90, you know, he's made a mistake. So I adjust so that I can see the camera again. But then he does it again. <laughs> and by the third time he did it, I knew what he was doing, you know. And I, I just walked over to him. I needed to get some focus here. And I said, I said, hey, Bobby, I can do something with my ski jump nose you can't do. And he was like, he said, oh, yeah, what's that? And I just took this little prosthetic nose that the makeup people, and I ripped it off and handed it to him. <laughs> and he laughed, and I got it. I was very, I was very, very happy. Oh, it's outstanding. And, you know, I've, I have both the Richard Zoglin book and I have the Arthur Marks book. They actually came out when he was still alive. About Well, the Bob. Arthur Marks book is more factual. It is? Oh, for sure. Okay, because uh, what was interesting is I've talked to a couple of people about it, and they've said – it's it's a hit piece, but doesn't mean hit pieces aren't 
real in a lot of ways. And basically, the Arthur Marks book was Bob Hope was a great entertainer, this and this. He fucked around in, in Dolores here and here, and uh, this is his uh, relationship with uh, Marilyn Maxwell and Anita Ekberg and all mm-hmm. this. And it, and uh, and then there's another part where it's uh, uh, Arthur Marks talking about uh, me and my uh, writing partner were trying to get uh, a thing picked up and Hope screwed us over on jokes and everything. But he's such a great guy, and, you know, it was one of those kind of— And, like, you're reading, and you're like, wow, like, I can't tell if Bob Hope is the greatest man, like— humanitarian or he's just an absolute son of a bitch <laughs> well arthur marx told more stories <clears throat> that bob's writers identified as real when i had lunches and dinners with them because what happened with my impersonation of bob oh i not only ended up going to hope's house three times but and and doing like i think i did three different specials with him um but i ended up becoming, you know, this kind of little celeb with his writers, the guy who could make them laugh by doing their boss and (laughs) making fun of them. And so, and it was always good natured, but, you know, so I ended up becoming friends with those guys and they were telling me stories that were in Arthur Marx's book that Zoglin never touched because they were too racy. And I think that, you know, there was a sort of a bio of Bob that his daughter Linda and Dolores would authorize. And then there was the bio of Bob that would just be the true bio that his writers yeah. would write. You know, and I mean, he was a hopeless philanderer. There's no denying that. The relationship with Marilyn Maxwell was so real. He was genuinely in love with her and he would have married her, according to the writers. Except that he couldn't hope Dolores wouldn't give him a, a divorce. Even though wasn't he married before Dolores that was that yep. was also found out? Yep, you're right. And so, you know, there's a bunch of contradictions in the story of Bob Hope. No question about it. But the real deal is that, you know, you want to find out who Bob is, read the Zoglin one. But if you want to find out who Bob really was, do you know what I mean? That's, Read the Arthur Marx book. That's fascinating, and and it, but but I will say, in fairness to Bob Hope, is that I I think the baby boomer generation probably they looked at him as because their parents enjoyed Bob Hope and they enjoyed yeah. him in the '30s, his radio show in the '40s when they got their first televisions. He was one of the first people on TV, Texaco, Star Theater, all those things, and um and then when you really get down to it uh, the baby boomers didn't appreciate bob hope the way that th- their previous generation did however when you start to look at whether you're talking about the kind of the effeminate coward of the the road movies of the 30s and 40s well woody allen basically credits bob hope for that uh, the the talk show format or the a presenter in the monologues of, uh, of whether it's an award show or a talk show Johnny Carson, uh, all the way to a Jimmy Fallon today, Billy Crystal, they all looked up to what Bob Hope did at that time. And essentially everybody is doing a Bob Hope impression. <laughs> I mean, like they're they're kind of taking what he did and what he helped set up and just made popular. It's just the whole thing is, like you said, he stuck around the party too long and he kind of became a parody of himself over time. Yeah, and, you know, there are people that want to assassinate him all the time. I just did Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. (laughs) And there's this TV special where Bob Hope, God bless him, he should have been, he should have stayed at home that day, but he played Jack Frost. Oh, yes. That was his last one. Yeah, and he was really, you know, two steps out of the grave there. And, um and, and, it, and it, you know, Gilbert is really loves that because he loves it from the point of view of wanting to kind of assassinate Hope. And I kind of look at it kind of, yeah, but, you know, I see the whole picture. I see the guy that was great in the 30s and 40s and 50s and the guy who, like I said, stayed at the party too long. And, you know, so I can't hate him and I can't look at Jack Frost without feeling a little sad for the guy. And, um, you know, there was, um, there was a, a time, I did something that 
I don't think I've ever done before. There was a couple of guys that did a talk show in LA. I think they were Mark and Brian or something like that. Anyway, they called Hope and they just dribbled him around the room. They made fun of him. Mm. And they were just assholes. So I called them back, but pretended to be Bob Hope. <laughs> and I just said to them, I said, I said, I said, you guys don't, you guys don't think I know people. I can get you guys audited by the IRS for 10 years in a row. You know what I mean? I scared them. I, I went after them as hard as I wow. could as Bob Hope, because I was mad at them for what they did to him, you know? Yeah, you can't, you can't do that. It's... And they apologized at the end. I was like, yeah, yeah, you, 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 as Bob really mad, you know, yeah, you, you better, you better be sorry, you know. <laughs> were, anyway. were, were you uh, in charge of getting him on Spies Like Us? No. No, no okay. that was Danny. In fairness, that was Danny's idea. Okay. But, but you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote that with Danny and in the draft, we did the three first drafts together. And in the draft that we wrote, Hope wasn't in it. Okay. I, I just we, I just thought I'm like when I saw you were there, I'm like, oh, Dave Thomas and Bob Hope. Hmm. Wonder who okay. button that you get gave me my answer there. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple other things, uh, just to, yeah, on, on the topic of how your career has been. Um, since again mentioning Bob Hope in Cleveland, is that you did a pilot called From Cleveland. Oh, wow. And uh, I just right. I spotted it the other day because I had never heard of it. And it's fascinating because obviously it has much of the SCTV cast uh, and, and the Second City members uh, along with um, Bob and Ray. And you know, Bob That's and right. Ray were a, a, an amazingly influential radio team for folks who don't know about them. Please go check them out. And Chris Elliott is, <coughs> you know, the and son. And they were hysterically funny. And, and the fact that it's a... It's interesting because you're so used to it because it was 1980 and it was from Cleveland and it's this whole thing has to do with it's like a bunch of sketches that were going on, but there's no laugh track. And for 1980, that's odd because you're you're expecting to be guided into laughing at certain sketches and you're like, I can't tell if I'm supposed to laugh here, which is I think is refreshing because I think there are some moments that don't need a, a laugh track and that you don't need to be have your hand held to see if you were going to laugh at that. But I thought it was interesting. It was a CBS pilot. It didn't get picked up. But uh, somebody posted it in a forum the other day, and I, I I watched it. And I'm like, oh, you saw it? Yeah, and it's it's out there. It's on YouTube. Okay, so you know the thing that I did in the in the boxing ring? Yeah, the Richfield Coliseum, yes. Okay, so this is what really happened there. There was um, a I found this out later. There was a, a de bad decision. This is the annual tough man fight that they would have in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So they were just rounders who come and kick, beat the shit out of each other in the ring. <laughs> and so there was a bad decision in the fight before I went on as Bob Hope. And some, <clears throat> some uh, white guy threw a beer bottle and hit a black guy's kid in the head. Mm. And so... I walked into a smoking cauldron and 15,000 people. And all of a sudden I get like three or four jokes in and people start throwing stuff in the ring. And I, I'd never played 360 before. So I didn't know how to play a boxing ring. Their cameras were there and there were like four CBS cameras set up with cue cards. I saw one of the cameras go down. The crowd's on the move. I saw one of the cameras go over. And then I saw the other one go over. And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm running out of cameras here. So I turned to these guys. And then this guy who's a promoter is at the edge of the ring screaming, get the fuck out of the ring. <laughs> I said, you, you started a riot. He thought I started it. And I walked over to the side of the ring. And the... Um, State troopers were on hand all the time because these annual tough man fights had riots all the time. And so all I remember was that I had the mic in my hand and this guy, uh, this cop, this big state trooper, literally lifted me over the ropes and the mic ka-chunk went out of my hand and, I, and he handed me to another cop and I saw Catherine O'Hara crying 
and Eugene Levy looking really concerned, and that's what happened to me in that ring. Goodness. And Rock Orbisi was the producer. He produced a bunch of specials for uh, Richard Pryor, and um, it was never meant to be a, sh- a series. It was only meant to be a one-off. Oh, really? It okay, because yeah, when they say one-hour special, when they say yeah. it was a pilot, we're thinking that oh, it's going to be oh, CBS is going to pick this up and put this on rotation, and so yeah. it was just only a one-off special. So there, that was it. That was what you guys had. Okay. Yeah, and then there was we went down to some bar in the flats, and um, you know Rocco was from Cleveland, mm-hmm. so he's all oh, you guys, you're going to love the flats. Well, people get killed in the flats. It's a dangerous place. And and then I forget some of the other stuff. But a lot of it was out on the streets of uh, Cleveland. And Yeah, there's a, scene, there's a scene where I think uh, Eugene is, uh, he's homeless, and then you take over for him. He jumps in a car, and then now you're the homeless guy right. ranting <laughs> right in public square. We stayed in a hotel called Swingos. Swingos, yep. Long gone, yeah, unfortunately. Okay, so while we were there, somebody got shot and killed on the roof. <laughs> That's Cleveland mob, for you. It was a mob hotel. When we'd go to the breakfast room in the morning, you could see these guys, you know, union guys and mob guys sitting in the corner <laughs> having their meeting. And it was just like, holy crap, this is this is this is a Scorsese environment if if ever there was one. Yeah, there, yeah, Cleveland in those days was, uh, I mean, they, they had the big radio station, the Buzzard, and the reason for the Buzzard was it was it's a mascot to represent a dying town. Like, it was so funny right. when, they, when they were talking about, oh, how about we rename the Indians the Buzzards? And I'm like, so you, you understand the joke. That it's an in-joke there. And in 1980, you like you're coming off of, you had a, had a mayoral election. You had a couple of recalls, and the city goes into uh, to bankruptcy. Uh, and you then, remember uh, Kid Rock? Oh, Kid Leo. Kid Leo. Kid yeah, Leo. Sorry. Yep. He yep. was at Buzzard Radio. Kid Leo. And we did, and, yeah, yeah. And we he did he, Buzzard Radio. I think wasn't it in the show? Wasn't there a Buzzard Radio thing in the show? There may have been. I believe so. Yeah. They. Uh, uh, and yeah, because I know you and Rick were, I think, wh- whether it was SCTV or it was uh, promoting Strange Brew, you guys came in studio with the Buzzard Morning Zoo. Yeah. 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 Time. That, uh, but yeah, it was. I, I had to ask you about that, and then I got to ask you about the Dave Thomas comedy show, which was that another one of those that it was just only supposed to be like a summer replacement, or was this going to be like, no. hey, maybe this could be a springboard into a, my own show here? Yeah, this was definitely um, a short order that they tested in the summer to see if they could build an audience, and I mean, I, a number of people tried sketch in prime time and failed. You know, um, and I was one of them. And so I did six of those. And I, there's one, there's, I originally did an opening for that show that was too frightening for CBS. And it's not the opening that aired. And I think I still have a copy of it. But I had a theater down in Long Beach. And I came out in front of an audience that I had papered was my audience and I had an orchestra pit and an orchestra and I came out to welcome everyone to the show and I had this big gigantic curtain behind me the curtain opened and I had an 80 foot blue screen behind me onto which I projected a California highway and landscape going off into the distance and I had a car on stage a red Ford Mustang and I get in the car and I start driving and then it cuts to me driving and I'm trying to show the audience how big the stage is for this show. And then I actually put up these blue paper walls to be the sky. And my car drove through the paper walls where they kind of fired it with a ram through big paper backstage. And then anyway, it was a crazy opening. And we had like uh, Partway on my drive, I stop, and then I look over my shoulder, and I cut into the picture uh, of the road that I'd been going down, off in the distance, a little square, and the audience was in it. The audience was in that little square. And then you cut back to close coverage of the audience, and they're looking with binoculars, 
and the woman is saying, what's he doing? He said, he's, he stopped. I think he's getting out of his car. And <laughs> I get out of my car and these three Mexican banditos ride up. And they go, hey, senor, what do you got? I said, what do you mean? How much you got? I said, well, I, I, got, I don't have any money. Hey, come on. How much you win? Oh, you got some. And so I said, well, I got maybe 20 bucks. And one of the guys, 20 bucks. <laughs> 20 bucks. 20 bucks is not going to cut it, senor. And it's like that treasure of Sierra Madre type moment, right? And um, then I can see you shifting in your seat. So anyway. Oh, no, blah, no. Blah, I, blah. I, I love this. We, we, I sick them on the audience. I just say, hey, I don't have any money, but you know what's funny? Those, look back there. You see that? Those are people in the audience. <laughs> they've all got wallets. They've all got cash. And, and the banditos look and they squint and they go, Oh yeah, Vanos! <laughs> you know they ride off towards that. Well, CBS didn't like that opening, and then they made me do stand up in front of a studio audience. And you're not was, a uh, you're not a stand up. You're not a monologist. No. So, <laughs> but this was way more creative and fun, you know. And that was, uh, I mean, because you know, and we're talking those days. You, so you're talking 1990. This was the time where. Oh, Seinfeld is a stand-up, and Roseanne has done this. So now let's all get our stand-ups, and that's what eventually caused Brett Butler and Grace Under Fire. Was it was the craze of Oh, Tim Allen, Drew Carey, you guys do stand-up, yeah? Let's let's build a show. Uh, Kevin James, you do Ray Romano, and they just started. Hey, are you a stand-up comedian who has observational humor? Well, we've got a nice uh, development deal for you with the ABC right now. <laughs> that's exactly what they were doing. You're right. How old are you? I'm 33. I'm shocked that you remember all this because oh. you're too young to actually have experienced it. Well, it's I I I was born in the wrong time. That's why I'm always a I always say I'm an old soul, and I always go back every and this is I do this. It's like a party trick because there's so many of those SCTV clips that are online that if I'm at a party, I'm putting on half wits. I'm putting on you know play it again, Bob. And I'm introducing a lot of people that kind of were grown up in the Saturday Night Live generation of kind of like the easy humor, the going for the easy joke to what I always considered SCTV was it was silly humor for smarter, or a smarter audience. And I will go on and, and just go through a whole thing. So like preparing for talking to you today. That's all I did today was just watch SCTV clips because it's I, I watched the, the Battle of the PBS Stars. Um uh, the the Merv Griffin show with the Rick is playing Merv Griffin and they have I think they had Yasser Arafat was on there by Joe Flaherty and and then uh, you come out as Liberace and you guys are just showing the inside lining of your coats. That's right. It just because because they did that. Yeah. On Merv. <laughs> I mean, okay, I was promoting some show after SCTV and I actually did Merv's show. His later show, I forget when it was it was a bit it would have been in the 80s but anyway merv says "Ooh, ooh," <laughs> and you did me on your show and i said no i it wasn't me it was rick moranis and he goes oh, i don't know i said well how do you know that and he said well he said i was watching tv one night i was flipping around the channel and i heard my theme and i went <laughs> what i'm not on right now and and he said and then i see this guy and he's got pillows packed in his pants to give him a huge ass you know and he said that wasn't very nice and i said well it wasn't me but he didn't believe me you know he thought it was me you know really so, well that's yeah, not, yeah, that's yeah. not the only time anybody got upset with an impression even if you didn't do it because uh you, you said that uh, richard harris was not a fan of your macarthur park version he hated me <laughs> i know it's terrible he actually physically pushed me Pretending that it was like pals, but it was not at all. It, it, I, I, that's another one that I will go on at a party and I'll put on Mel's rock pile. And it's just you up there doing the silly like monkey dance <laughs> as Richard Harris. Well, that that song has a really long break. And so I thought the reason I did that was I thought if Richard Harris ever performed that, there'd be two things that would be interesting. One is what the fuck does he do during the break? <laughs> Because he can't sing. Does he just stand there? 
And then the second thing is, how does he cover the fact that he never did the high note? <laughs> and he didn't, you know, no. he had a singer do that for him. So I had this woman sitting reading a book, a singer, by the microphone, just during the whole number. And, and she, then, yeah, she's and just goes, reading the book the entire time. And, and you when call it comes no to that note, to it. she stands up, leans in the mic, does the note, and then I took credit for it, like as Richard Harris, as if Harris had sung it. It's it's so funny. And then the they throw the brick, and you know, and then uh, Eugene's playing. <laughs> oh, I forgot about the brick. Yeah, <laughs> I could have said in the, in the, It's like for God's sake, man, get me a towel. Oh, it's just it's it, it's again another show that, uh, and I know you. You guys did the that reunion that Martin Scorsese. Is that ever going to see the light of day? I don't know. It's I, he's still editing it, but he's doing movies and who knows. He's, I, he's I, doing, I really doing the Irishman. Know. That's that's seven seventeen hours. But uh, I mean, I I go back. The Cruise and Gourmet is another great one. Although I watched both versions, the longer version that had the the Disco Strangler by the Eagles that they had to cut out because I don't know, if, I guess for rights, it's kind of like what WKRP in Cincinnati that they couldn't keep the rights to a lot of the music because it was just too expensive. So they just had some stock music as you're shoving, stuffing into the turkey. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I was shocked that I got that on NBC. I was going to say, right. like, did you, did you guys run into much uh, censorship on SCTV? Well, what happened was when we did the show in Edmonton, uh, we started out where we were a little bit ahead, where we had some sketches that we'd written banked, but boy, we ran out of them fast. And then we were just scrambling to fill time every week. And, you know, I remember there was one time the carpenters quit because they said, we can't build any more sets. There's so many, there's so much sawdust back there. We can't even breathe and uh, we need some time off. And so the producers came to us and said, you got to write sketches that will use existing sets. Here's a list of the exist existing sets. So it's hard enough to fill time for 90 minutes of TV every week, but then to use existing sketch yeah. sets makes it really hard too. So, um, well, to answer your question about censorship, we got behind and they had a big satellite uh, system in Edmonton. The guy that owned the station was kind of saw himself as kind of a Canadian Ted Roger or Ted, um, the guy from Atlanta, the super station. Oh, Ted Turner. Yeah. Yeah. He saw himself as kind of a Canadian Ted Turner. And we'd finished the shows at the last minute and didn't have time to fly the tapes to New York. So we beamed them to New York by satellite. Okay. So they never saw the stuff till it aired. Oh, that's really? How, okay. So that, hey, that's there you how go. it got on. Yeah, because, I mean, like, it, there wasn't a lot of incredibly edgy stuff where you're going to have to go, like, oh, no, this has to be cut for sexuality and for whatever. But the edge came from a lot of the biting humor and the satire that was was really coming from there. And whether you were talking about the celebrities or um, and, and some of the things that were lampooned or the stuff around the station, Guy Caballero. And it, uh, it was... It was the legacy still lives on. Everybody still really enjoys it. That's why every anytime anyone's ever talked to you, they're never going to say, "Oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you about SCTV." Because of course, everybody, you know, it's a, it's a huge legacy. It's a huge thing that is, uh, and, and really is one of those where it launched so many careers. Not only just on the show, but people who were in the audience who said, "I got to do sketch comedy too." Like those guys, whether you're seeing them on, on stage, like I was talking to Colin Mockery a, a few months ago, and he said as soon as he started seeing you guys on stage, he had to go on stage. And the amount of people and the amount of talent that was coming from Toronto in those days and in Chicago eventually, and then they everybody kind of migrated over the border over to New York or L.A., but it's just such a great show. I, rec I continue to recommend it to everybody, and just it, it's, still, it's still so much fun, and it's, it's timeless in my opinion. Well, I don't know what to say. Thank you. <laughs> it's uh, it's great, and that and and you know we can wrap it up here because uh, I'll, I'll let you get on with your day. But I really appreciate this, Dave. Uh, and make sure you go check out and, and purchase the Many Lives of Jimmy Layton uh, with Dave Thomas oh. and Mac Co Max Collins. It's available on Amazon, right? 
Available on Amazon. That's that is right. that is great. The shockingly low price of eight ninety nine or three ninety nine for Kindle. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I I I could so honestly talk to you for hours more talking about the McKenzie brothers or Bill Needle and all the other characters and everything. But, well, we, uh, we can do this again, you know. Oh yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, let's see. That's uh, what happened with uh, Gilbert Gottfried. I did one show and then. It, they said, "Oh, you got to come back," and so I did. So. That was a good. That was a good uh, interview you guys did with Gil, or the one that was a few years ago that you yeah. did, and you were talking about that. It was uh, it was really great, and your chat show with Kevin Pollack a couple of years ago as well. But uh, and wow. uh, but I had to do my own research because I'm like, I, it's I, I've been such a fan for so many years, and as soon as I got that email from you about confirming the interview, I'm like, oh, this I, I can't wait, and that's all I've been thinking about today. So again, Dave, I really appreciate this. Uh, and I look forward to talking to you again. And uh, keep yourself healthy, please. <laughs> I'll do that. Take I'll care, do my Dave. best.